pray, Father. What a neat moment. We are so grateful you're here. We acknowledge your presence. We thank you that you have given us eyes that can see you. And so, God, we would ask that in these moments, uh, God, as you've prepared my heart and placed some words in my heart on this paper, I ask, God, for people, whether it's the first time they're here in the church and they're just starting to wonder about you or they've been here for many, many years. We, we want to come together, young and old, and just hear from you and listen to you and, and, and give our lights to you. That's what we're here for. So thank you. Thank you for your presence right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jean-Pierre de Cassade. He's born in the late 1600s. And uh, he had a wonderful phrase that he said. He didn't have a lot from his life that, uh, that is known historically that can be passed on. But he, he had this phrase that I think is just wonderful. It says, the soul... Light as a feather, fluid as water, innocent as a child, responds to every movement of grace like a floating balloon. That kind of a neat thing. This whole idea that, that the soul, our, our, our being, can be made in such a way that it's light as a feather, fluid as water, innocent as a child, and every movement of grace, like wind that comes along, moves this, this balloon-like soul by the Spirit's promptings and movements and, and all those wonderful things. In fact, Jean-Pierre de Cassade was, was known for one other thing, where he talked about the sacredness of the present moment, which we've been kind of doing in worship this morning. It's just God being present right now and, and understanding that. Well, let me share with you. Living in the moment for me is really tough. And I have some reason for this. I tend to be much more like a heat-seeking missile, focused and determined, locked on a target. Okay? You know, some of you are balloons, and there are some of you who probably aren't like me. Kind of more like a heat-seeking missile, focused and, and on task. And the reason I say that is, a few years back, about six years ago, I took an inventory. I've taken other personal, you know, personality inventories, but this one called Strength Finders helped me understand a bit about my nature and who I am and why it's tough to live in the moment. Uh, the authors of inventory, they talk about five signature themes that if you kind of understand these things, then you should give your energy and you should learn and be educated in and, and then develop the skills around that because you will do what comes natural to you in those signature themes. And so live those out and do what you can to make those strong. Don't worry about what they call the other ones, which are your weaknesses. And HR people like to call those not weaknesses, but growth areas, which we all know are things we stink at, right? And so... They make this, you know, they share this thing with you. And, and there's 34 of these measurable signature themes. They often only give you the top five, but I got to see all 34. My top five are this, are these. Strategic, competitive, activator, achiever, futuristic. And now you know why my wife is struggling. No. Basically, I am wired to think how to get somewhere in the future more efficiently and effectively than anyone else. 
My capacity to live in the moment, enjoy the present, is practically nil. In fact, the 34th signature theme in my inventory is called adaptability. And the authors of the signature theme say, people strong in adaptability theme prefer to go with the flow. They tend to be now people who take things as they come and discover the future like a balloon one day at a time. Okay, I I say that kind of in a humorous way, but let me ask you, how many of you are more like the heat-seeking missile? Come on, you got to choose one. There's no midpoint here. We're just going to say, what do you tend to be like? Raise your hand. Come on, there's more like me than just a few. Okay, how many are over here more like the balloon, fluid, floating, in the moment? Raise your hands. I want to see who's the, the balloons. Okay. So you know what? More than likely you've married a balloon or a missile, right? More than likely you work for a missile. They tend to kind of move into those leadership positions. Paul gives him very practical pointers on how to live in the moment. Unlike the authors of the Strength Finders test, the Bible is interesting. The Bible does not let us get away and say, well, I'm not real good at this, so I don't have to do this. You know, the... The joy thing, well, maybe that's for someone else. The giving thanks, the prayer always, yeah, no. Paul is very, very interesting as he writes this. And he says in, in a command, he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, and for all those of you who like to, you know, you like the performance of learning verses, you can learn three of them real quickly here, okay? They're very short. Verse 17, be joyful always. Verse 18, pray continually. Verse 19, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He is basically making a point. It's a challenge to those who are more like heat-seeking missiles, who are on task. It is a challenge to incorporate these into your life in such a way as they become a part of your life, they really help anchor you and root you more into the moment. He calls you to begin to do this. Now, some of you on the other side who are more like the balloons are kind of going like, duh, I just, God's doing things. I'm so excited about the day. Every moment is a gift to open. You know, that kind of thing. And you're kind of going, well, Paul. You know, see, I don't think Paul himself was really the balloon side of the equation. That's why I don't think he says much more than rejoice, pray, and he's real short. Give thanks. And in all honesty, I probably shouldn't be giving this message. I should probably have found someone who is more like this to stand up here and share this with you. But I'm going to do the best I can because God has been at work in my heart on this for the last five to six years. He has been challenging me to take that 34th theme and pay attention to it. Paul ends his letter with this challenge. He says, develop within you three attitudes that will anchor you in the moment. And you might really call them just attitudes, but they're more than attitudes. They're actually actions that you can take. They're actions that you can choose to do. And as you do them again and again, they form habits and those habits form your character. You can. You can become a joyful person. You can become a person who learns how to live in the conscious awareness of God through a conversation with Him, which we call prayer. You can become a kind of person who is just a grace-filled kind of heart before God. There's a reason that um, 
this is so important. If you look at this idea of choosing this again and again and forming a character in you, Paul says at the conclusion of verse 19, for this is God's will for you. This is the way God wants followers of Jesus to live. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament and Scripture, there are not a lot of verses that tell you how to share your faith? There's a reason why Paul gives this command to everybody. He doesn't, you don't find a lot of places in Scripture. What you find often in Scripture is Paul addresses the kind of character that we should become. And when that character is formed and people see their joy, they see the sense of your awareness of God's presence, they see your grateful heart, they look at that and they go, I want in on that. That's attractive. That's alluring. You see, the skill, if you wanted to, the skill of sharing the faith and, and talking about the cross and how to enter into relationship with Him, you know, to, to challenge people to do that, that's really the easy part. The, the hard part is what Paul spends all the letters on. It's what we all need to pay attention to. It's the formation of these things within us because the things that are important according to the Word of God, and the reason why this is not a, a take-it-or-leave-it kind of optional thing is because the fruit of the Spirit, as it says in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control are all the things that are of the Spirit that can be formed in us. And when they are formed in us, we become like Jesus Christ. And through choices and habits and practices and exercises, we can become like this so that people who you know at work or you know in your neighborhood or family members and others can, can come around you and go, what's going on inside you? What's the joy about? Your life doesn't have a lot of things to be happy about. How is it you're so sensitive to God and his promptings? Why is it you're thankful in the midst of this crisis? Let me ask you for a second to think. Look at your life. Would you be comfortable doing what Jesus did? Jesus said to people, enter into my life. I want you to, to, to follow my way and to walk in the truth. What's really interesting with Jesus, he didn't use a lot of you should do this and should do that. If you watch and read the teaching of Jesus, most of the teaching of Jesus is he says, here's how to live. Now you can choose to live in it or not. This is the truth. This is the fact. And then he says, enter into the life. Paul does something very similar. He says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus, right? Think for a second. How many of you would feel comfortable Inviting someone at work and say, you know what, I would like for you to enter into the life I'm living. How many would be attracted to want to live the life you're living? That's really what it means to follow and to walk after Jesus. Well, let's look at this. These three things that I think are key attitudes. The first one is rejoice. Be joyful always. Choose joy. It's almost the kind of Bob Marley philosophy. Don't worry, be happy. With None of the other stuff he does. Anyway, um, when I was in my first church, uh, it was when I was going to seminary. I was a 23-year-old kid. And uh, I pastored a congregation of about 40. And I had a church secretary. She was 93. A little bit of an age difference. Um, her only responsibility was to type, and this will date me a little bit, and mimeograph you know, I remember how that smelled. And then um, published the bulletin weekly. My main responsibility was basically to prepare, write, and deliver a message every Sunday. 
Well, it was one day I visited Ruth. It was on a Saturday. I had to go over and make, and make some changes with her on the bulletin, and she wasn't quite getting it. And so I went to her house. She had had a horrible cold. I mean, she's sitting there with a Kleenex, 93-year-old lady. She was losing her hearing. I remember a couple of times I had to say things over again to her. And her face was bruised on one side quite badly. And I, I looked at her. She looked horrible. And, and I just asked her how she was doing. And I really expected her to complain and to talk about her aches and pains. But her response took me by surprise. With this big smile and this winsome voice, she looked at me and she said, Kevin, Pastor, she said, I don't know if the old devil is working on me. But if he thinks I'm coming over to his side, he's crazy. <laughs> I just laughed. Because I'm sitting here thinking, as I'm looking at this lady, she has everything in the world to complain about, to have no joy right at this moment. But she was the kind of person who, over the years, took her faith so seriously that she had formed within her this sense of joy. And she said, I'm not going to walk on this side no matter what. I'm going to live in this joy. In the letter to Philippians, Paul He writes to this church in Philippi, and you have to understand the context. He's writing to this church. He was actually wanting to go a different direction. God had him see a vision of a person calling him over to this other place. And so he, with the team, prayed about it, decided, and went over to Philippi. They get to Philippi, and they find hardly anybody there. They can't find anyone to give and share Jesus with. So you would think in their mind they'd be complaining already, like, God, did we miss it? Paul, what are you dreaming about? But in the process of it, they meet with a few people. It says one of the ladies. And in that whole situation, they end up getting thrown into prison, into a dungeon. And you would think, man, talk about no joy complaining. They are in the dungeon, Silas and Paul. They begin to praise God. They begin to say, God, we're going to express joy to you. As they're expressing joy, the earth around them shakes. The, The prison breaks open due to an earthquake. The jailer looks at him and goes, what is with you guys? I want what you've got. And then he writes to this church in Philippi. He's writing to that same church where this happened. And as he's writing to them, he's in prison again. And he says this to this group. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Goes on to Philippians 3. Once again, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And guess what? It's even a safeguard for you. The joy of the Lord is a strength. As it, it, it begins to fill your heart, it, it fills you in your being. And then at the end, he finally pleads with two women in the church who are combative and and at war with each other. And he writes to these women, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. There's a reason why Paul did this, because Paul knew how important joy was to God. Joy is at the heart of God, and it's the heart of his plan for every human being. Joy is at the heart of God himself. In fact, we'll never understand the significance of joy in human life until we understand its importance to God. I suspect that most of us seriously underestimate God's capacity for joy and what he wants for us to experience. C.S. Lewis wrote it this way, joy is the serious business of heaven. When you look at our lives and I look at my life, I'm so task-oriented that it becomes so serious that I've lost the serious business of heaven. 
Anybody who takes yourself, if you take yourself too seriously in what you're doing, you lose that opportunity to be able to stand back and experience joy. Lewis Smead's right. To miss out on joy is to miss out on the reason for your existence. John Piper says man's deepest and most durable happiness comes together in one pursuit, namely the pursuit of joy in God. I have a friend who writes that we'll never understand God until we understand this thing about him. God is the happiest being in the universe. Think about that a second. God is the happiest being in the universe. I think when Jesus lived this life, he was full of joy. He loved to laugh. I think when he got those guys around them, they had some great times. Because joy, he knew, was important to his father. It was God's basic characteristic. And as we grow, we become more godly. When we become more godly, we don't become more holy and sour. We become more like Jesus and full of joy. In fact, joy is God's eternal destiny. In fact, it is also our eternal destiny. Do you know the very first thing we're going to do when we go to heaven? Is we're going to actually enjoy a wedding feast. This past weekend, my brother's daughter got married. And what was really fun is we had about two or three days of family coming together from New York, Chicago, Colorado, San Diego, all these family coming together. And we had about three days of feasting. It was so fun to have everyone together. See, joy is something God just takes great pleasure in. And so when we get to heaven, the very first thing we're going to do is have a party. We're going to celebrate. You're going to see people who went on before you. You're going to see people whom you've loved that you've been separated from. You have the opportunity to sit at a feast like a wedding and enjoy all that God is doing by bringing everything together. Because joy is something he loves. And joy should be something that becomes a part of us. Leon Bloy writes this, and I I love this line. Joy is the most infallible sign of God's presence. Joy is the most infallible sign of God's presence. When I was about 28, I have a really good friend who we both were starting our first churches, and I went out to visit him out in California. He was at that time just beginning to write a book. He had read something by a guy named Dallas Willard. And he said to me, Kevin, I wanted to share with you some of the things that I've been thinking about. And he said, I've been struggling to understand how a person can claim to be a follower of Jesus for some 50 years and be practically the same person he was when he first chose to follow Jesus 50 years ago. And I said, what do you mean? Explain more. And he said, I have a leader in my church. I'll call him Hank. He rarely smiles, and when he does, it's usually at the expense of someone else when they're feeling pain. In fact, Hank has a knack of discovering bad news, he said, in an ocean of happiness. Actually, he can spot a cloud when there's this huge silver lining around it. He rarely affirms anyone. He operates on the assumption that if you compliment someone, that's going to go to a, you know, swell their head. He said his native tongue is complaint, and he has this gift that he, that somehow I don't ever find in the Bible of criticism. He judges, he disapproves. He says he's got some really neat kids. In fact, his joylessness creates sadness even in his own family. He says, I know his son fairly well who's been coming to church. He's excited about things that are happening. But his son has really never told his father about how he met his wife and, and how this son and his, and his um, daughter-in-law, how they had met at a, at a dance and, and this incredible story they had. He's never showed and told his father because all he would get was disapproval. He said Hank could not even effectively love his wife, his children, 
or even people outside his family, was so easily irritated. He had little use for the poor. He had this attitude that if you're poor, it's because you deserved it. He wasn't crazy about people with a different pigment of skin than was different than his own. He critiqued and judged, complained, and he was going, I said, yeah, I get the picture. And then he said to me, you know, this shouldn't be so. Hank has gone to church practically his whole life, but hasn't changed. He was a cranky young man, and he's a cranky old man. And then he said something to me that opened my eyes to what the life of Jesus should be about. He said to me, Kevin, guess what? I mean, that bothers me, but what really bothers me in the church that I'm serving, more troubling than his lack of change is the fact that at my church, nobody is surprised by that. Nobody's alarmed at the fact that someone who has made a commitment to follow Jesus is still as cranky at 50, you know, 50 years after he made this decision. No one seems bothered by his condition. No church consultants are called in. No emergency meetings are held to probe the strange condition of a person who has followed the church's general guidelines, sat in Bible classes, attended worship service for over 50 years, and hasn't changed. Paul says, joy is a command. It is not optional. Something is wrong if you are a follower of Jesus and you are not more joyful today than you were when you first began to follow him. And here's the truth. You can become a joyful person. The biblical writers would not have commanded it if it wasn't so. In fact, joy, just like trust, just like a a thankful heart, just like learning to walk in the conscious presence of God, just like patience, just like self-control, are all skills. It's real easy for me or any of us to kind of go, well, I'm more of this kind of untasked person, and so it's just not really a part of my life. I'm so untasked. And, and yet, it's real easy to say, well, that's just the kind of thing that some people have and others don't. And I'm not saying that some don't have it more naturally. But what I am saying is this. We are all called to have it supernaturally. It is according to God's Word that we have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has the ability to help us as we follow Him and walk with Him and we give our hearts to Him that He has the ability, not us, but as we open our hearts to Him to begin to transform and change us supernaturally that we become those kind of people. Otherwise, it would not be a fruit. And so he says, be joyful always. And there are practices you can do. I could uh, refer you to a number of things. Um, there's, there's a book called Devotional Classics that talks about some of this, um, co-authored by Richard Foster. Richard Foster has another book called Celebration of Disciplines. John Ortberg has a book called The Life You've Always Wanted. If you really are serious about that, those are some books you should look to get. But there are simple practices you can do that can increase your joy and develop the skill of joy. One of the ones that I've sought to do and I try to do is, is take this little verse that says in Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. Let me rejoice and be glad in it. And I try to say that at certain points along the way in my life, in the day, so that I stop and go, you know what? What am I joyful about? There are ways to do this. You can mark off, if you don't do this, regular times of celebration. Dinners with people you love, that you love to celebrate with. People that help bring joy into your life. You can sing. You can come to a service like this and and do just like the Scripture says. Sometimes it's a sacrifice of praise. The idea that you have to set aside how you're feeling. You have to set aside whether you like the music or whether you can get into this or that. And you just do it. Because as you express that, 
as you express it, something happens. The Spirit of God begins to change your heart and your soul. And you begin to smile. And you begin to understand the joy of God. You can just take time to delight in a child. There are things you can do. There's a second thing. Pray continually. Paul says another thing you can do that can help root you into the the moment is to have this prayerful attitude. Now, prayer can be an activity. Just like for me to have time to really be connected with my wife, we'll, we'll have from time to time a date night, or we set aside time on Friday mornings where we just... We go over things like the budget. Not fun, but, you know, it's a connecting time. But what I think is really important to understand is this. Prayer is an activity. It's very important that you have times that you set aside, and I encourage people to do this at least on a, 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 a daily basis where you take maybe 15 minutes or, or a half hour and you read God's Word and you just spend some time and you pray. But the other thing that Paul is talking about here is not the activity. He's talking about the attitude, this conscious awareness, this presence, that as you go through life... You hear the promptings of the Spirit. You're open to His voice. You're able to see with the eyes of your heart the things that God is doing. Which is much more an attitude. And it's a choice. It often, I believe, comes when a person comes to this place, like we had you know, heard in the first part of the service when we were talking that song, Closer, that was sung. Where one thing you desire is to surrender your whole being to God. In fact, I got a letter this last week. We've been doing a series in Galatians, just finished up on it. And, and this person wrote me this letter. A person who is a, a male who's attended our church for about 13 years. He, he, he says, Kevin, I wanted to let you know how much I've appreciated Sunday mornings. Every week I'm so excited to come to church to learn, to worship the Lord God, and to be challenged in my spiritual walk. God has been leading me on a journey these last couple of years that has been incredible. In fact, a couple of years ago, the Holy Spirit started convicting me to fast and pray for our church. Through this process, I was crying out to God to transform me and to transform our church. Just think about that. There's people within this church saying, God, do something in me and do something in our body. Through the beginning of the 2008 year, the Holy Spirit was convicting me to humble myself and to confess my sins. I started this scary process and found a new freedom I had never known as I began to care less and less about what others thought of me as I talked to my family and friends about the sins in my past as well as in my current walk. I felt a huge burden lift off my shoulders as I no longer had to or wanted to put on my good side for everyone around me. In November 2008, a friend handed me a book on prayer. That night, as I was sitting on my bed reading the book, I began to cry out to Jesus, asking him to help me talk to him more consistently. Jesus, I want to pray continually. As I was praying, Jesus appeared and sat on the edge of my bed. Exclamation point. I had never had a vision or anything like it in my entire life. Although it was not Jesus in the body he was there, exclamation point. I could actually see him like I could see anyone else. For the next three weeks, he went with me everywhere. In the car, to work, the bathroom. Yes, everywhere. I can tell you, I talked, prayed pretty much solid for those three weeks. He never answered or talked, just listened. I believe that God did this for me to show me that he is always with me and I can always talk to him about anything. And my prayer life has been transformed since this time as well as my own spiritual walk. Now catch this line. 
Because I think this is the most telling. After this, I became more, des- more and more desperate for God. I don't know what the doctrine of the filling of the Holy Spirit is, but this is another area of my life that has been transformed. In the past, the Holy Spirit would often convict me about my sin in my life or poke me to read a certain book or go and talk to have me talk to a certain person about the Lord. But as of late, I feel full of the Holy Spirit for long stretches of time where I feel completely led by God through the day, basically conscious of his presence and promptings. A couple of months ago, I was sitting down for lunch with two former high school students from our church here. They were home from the sum, for, for the summer from college. I had a dream the night before, but like every other dream I've had for the past 40 years, I didn't think anything of it. But as the three of us were talking, one of these students said they had a word from God for me. I wasn't sure what to think about this. No one had ever said anything like this to me. And the person proceeded to tell me the exact dream I had the night before and what God was saying. I was stunned. Although I could go on other things that have been happening, I felt like God wanted me to email you and encourage you as you lead our church. Thank you for your leadership and example to us all. See, Paul is basically saying, you know, and let me just tell you this. I believe as you come before God and say, God, I want you to be a part of every moment of my life. I'm not guaranteeing in any way that you're going to have him sit on your bed. I'm not in any way making some claim that you're going to have some kind of supernatural experience because it's not about that. We're not after some supernatural experience. We are after hearts that are sensitive and open to God so that through faith we trust in his grace and that we walk every moment of our day saying, God, we want you to be a part of it, that you learn to walk in conversation with God about your life. Pray continually. And it's a skill. You actually have to... Train yourself to do that. I remember when I first came to that point in my life where I said, God, I really want to be in your presence. I want to hear from you. I want to talk and walk with you. I want to learn what it means to be in conversation with you. I remember thinking, I had all these thoughts, you're going crazy, you don't want to do this. I mean, seriously, I had all these things coming against me. And I just said, you know what, more than anything else, I want this. I want you, God. I just want to look at, you know what, is that what you want? I would, I would get so excited as a pastor that if every person here kind of said, I want to know this God. Now, some of you may be at the first stages and you're kind of going, I'm not ready. But some of you have been walking with God and maybe you need to say, God, I want this more than anything in my life right now. Just think if you did that individually where you worked. The third thing he says is give thanks. And I'm just going to take a moment on this. Giving thanks is a powerful thing. It's one of the things I've been recently trying to do in my life because I think it's incredibly transforming. When you begin to give thanks, what happens is the good things that happen in your life, you keep yourself from getting tripped up and thinking in some way that you're responsible for those good things, that you're somehow the source of it. We are really just partners with God. We're like children walking with a father who comes along and helps us. And when you begin to give thanks, you go, thanks so much, Dad. Thanks, Father. I so enjoy this. And you recognize again, he's the one who provided. He's the source. And he also tells us to give thanks in the bad things. Because when the bad things come, for many of us, the temptation is to move into self-pity. It's to move into despair. It's to move into a place of, 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 of a debilitating sorrow. And when you give thanks, you're able to say, God, I recognize that even in this, you're doing something. 
As, as crummy and as painful as this feels, it may be that you're pruning something within me that needs to be pruned because you're trying to form in me the character so that I can do some things that I couldn't do before because you have a work you want to do. So I am open to it. So give thanks to you because you love me. You're passionately concerned about me. That's your God. He loves you. And so Paul says, give thanks because thanks forms your character. One of the things I've been trying to do myself is in my journal... I try to, in the morning, just write three things I'm going to be thankful for that day in order just to form my heart. There's all kinds of, you can do things before you go to bed at night, before you pray and go to sleep. You can say three things that you're thankful for that happened. You could set your watch if you want to on the hour and bug a lot of people when it goes off, but you could set it and when it goes off, stop and say I'm thankful for whatever's happening right then. You can do, as someone told me after the first service, what I do is I'm driving. When I come to a certain bridge, on the way to work, I give thanks for certain things. And on the way home, he says, so often I'll get near that bridge and I'll be going through this kind of anxiety thing because I've been in a place of feeling really sorry for myself and I've got to change my attitude. I just want to share with you, I think these things that these practices that we involve in our life can take people who are naturally directed and moved in certain ways, and by the power of the supernatural work of God, change us to become like Jesus. Because, folks, isn't that what this is all about? I love what Paul says. Joy, prayer, and thanks. This is God's will. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases it this way. This is the way God wants followers of Jesus to live. And the reason you can live this way is because God knows you and He loves you. God's sovereign. He knows the outcome. He knows you're going to win. He knows you're going to be with Him forever. And all this is to form you to become like His Son. I'm going to close. My, my parents were here in the first service and I shared this illustration because this is one that's always helped me really um, live in the moment and understand no matter what I'm going through, it's going to be okay. For instance... I was in college, and my brother's two years older than me. And uh, we came home on a weekend. We were tired, and both my brother and I were there. It was a Sunday afternoon. We turn on the TV. Not much is on on this Sunday afternoon. There's a race that's on, and so we're watching the race. And my dad says, come on, guys, let's pick cars. You know, like we used to do at the state fair in Minnesota, we'd, we'd see these, you know, these cars would go along, and we would pick cars, and we'd sit there as little kids, seeing which one would be the last one to, to be in there and who would win. We hoped ours would. So we went ahead and we picked cars. I picked Al Unser. He was near the front. My brother picked Mario Andretti. My dad picked some guy almost at the end of the whole pack we had never heard of. So the race starts and it starts going. It's about an hour into it. I'm feeling pretty bad because Al Unser keeps falling to the back and finally he gets out of the race. My brother's car, his keeps going back. My dad just continually slowly is moving forward towards the front of the pack. It's about midway at this point. So my dad comes in and he goes, you know, guys, Ah, Kev, I'm sorry if you tell, because I'm really, you know, competitive. So he says, you know, let's all pick another. You guys pick another car. So I pick another one, another big name up near the front. My brother, he says, you can even pick Keith, and Keith picks another one. And we say, well, are you going to pick that? And he goes, no, I'm fine with who I got. So we go along. As the race is coming to an end, he's just in there, and he'll come walking back into the kitchen laughing with my mom, coming back in. We're just upset. His car keeps moving. It's going from 7 to 5 to 3, and now it's 1, right near the end of the race. And it goes around, and he wins, and he's jumping around all excited. 
And we're going, what's the deal? And he goes, you know what? This race was taped yesterday. (laughs) And I learned a lesson there. And I keep asking myself, God knows what's going to happen. He knows what's going on in my life. So choose joy. Be in conversation with this God. And just be thankful. Because you're going to win. You have your Father on your side. He is always, always faithful. Let's stand together and sing just that chorus of Great is Thy Faithfulness.